Get into the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four at a well-known passage. Perhaps you've heard this passage before when you've gone to a memorial service or when someone has uh, preached through the book of First Thessalonians. But First Thessalonians chapter four regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, and we'll be reading through verse 18. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, this morning we're blessed to have a a guest speaker, one who uh, I believe this is his first time here joining us and filling the pulpit. He has been on the faculty of Seattle Christian Schools in the Bible Department for 15 years. He's pastored four churches in the area and a graduate of Dallas Seminary and uh, also has done some doctoral work at Northwest Baptist Seminary down in Tacoma. And he is here with his wife, uh, Deborah, of 41 years. He's a father of three, I believe, and a grandfather of five grandchildren. And so we are glad that he is here. I've heard wonderful things about his uh, Bible classes. And so let's give him a warm welcome as he comes up. Tim. Good morning. It is uh, indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be with you and to hold forth the word of God and to share what uh, what the Lord has laid on my heart. It's always a challenge stepping into someone else's pulpit simply because uh, I'm not certain what it is to which you are accustomed. Uh, I have a Bible and I run a lot of references. Now, I don't know if your pastor tends to stay in one passage or if he runs all over the place like I do, but uh, if he is more of a single passage expositor, then you can sort of put up with what I do this morning and shake your head and smile. And uh, uh, when, when we leave afterwards, you can uh, look heavenward and thank the Lord for your pastor that you're not stuck with me. So, uh, on the other hand, if he tends to run a lot of references, then we'll be right at home. Uh, I am always humbled by virtue of the fact that God has seen fit to enable me to handle his word. And I trust this morning that as we begin to examine this passage, that some of the truth of it will come out and will stay with you as it does with me. Sovereign Lord, as we approach your word, 
We recognize it is just that. It is your word, not our word. And so we would ask that as we endeavor to exposit it, to understand it, Lord, if there is a heart here that is without you, open that heart, sovereignly bring that one to yourself. Perhaps, Lord, in a passage of this nature, there is someone here who has recently lost a loved one. May this passage be a comfort to that heart. Lord, above all, may you speak through your servant. This I beg, I beseech, in Jesus' name. Amen. We used to sing a little song in Sunday school, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Have you ever heard it? My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Unfortunately, the American church is becoming less and less heavenly minded and more and more earthly minded. In spite of such passages, for example, as Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to bring all things to Himself. Likewise, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he says, does Paul, if then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Likewise, John writes under divine inspiration in 1 John 3 and makes this statement, Beloved, now we're children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're engaged in so many things nowadays, trying to juggle so many things, trying to fit everything into a busy lifestyle, into a busy schedule, that somehow... We find ourselves oftentimes juggling those things that are more necessary, those spiritual things, and somehow trying to figure out a way to put Christ where he should have the preeminence and the centrality. This morning as we examine this passage that Pastor read to you, I trust that perhaps you'll see it maybe in a way you have not seen it before. Now, we all know that the Lord's return is in two stages. The second stage in the Old Testament, the first stage in the New, and it kind of seems backward to us. But as we go back to the book of uh, of Zechariah, for example, in Zechariah 14, now you can stay in 1 Thessalonians, because we're coming right back to it, but I run a lot of references. In Zechariah 14, the prophet makes a statement, Zechariah 14, 4 and 5, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Some immense topographic changes at the second advent of our Lord. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you'll flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Now, that little passage, which we've isolated in Zechariah 14, speaks of the second advent. 
We are in the church age, which we have seen cross, day of Pentecost, church age. The rapture, we believe, ends the church age, followed by seven years of tribulation period, at which time the second advent, that Zechariah passage, occurs, and Christ physically returns to earth to establish that millennial kingdom. We're not looking at the second advent this morning. We want to look, rather, at this monumental event, which will end the church age, that we call the rapture of the church. Christ comes in judgment at the second advent. Before judgment, He comes in grace to remove those from this earth that are His. John 14, 1-3, for example, the Lord says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, what happens next? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Likewise, Paul deals with the whole issue of the rapture of the church and the Lord's return in 1 Corinthians 15. We won't take the time to examine it. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, a parallel passage. So, the first stage, the Lord's return is in two stages. The rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation period, followed by the second advent. So this morning we want to focus on that church-ending event that we call the rapture, the first stage of the Lord's return. With that in mind then, here we go. Now, virtually everyone who names the name of Christ <clears throat> excuse me, agrees that the Lord Jesus is going to return. Amen? The difference in denominations and the difference in expositors is not the Lord's return, but it's the time of the Lord's return, when that will happen. Uh, there are those, of course, who say that the church will go through the tribulation period. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 9 of uh, this particular book says, God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the issue is this. When will the rapture of the church occur? Don't know. Don't care. When will it occur? But it will occur. And who will be involved? You. And I, if indeed you are in Christ. So let's examine it now and see what happens. First of all, I think you have a little outline in your bulletin. I asked Pastor not to give away too much of the mystery of today. So he did exactly what I asked him to do and gave you the main points. First of all, the concise preview of the church. As Paul writes under divine inspiration, remember now, the issue in interpretation is to try and understand what the recipients or the listeners would have understood. So we need to go back now in our thinking 2,000 years. The Thessalonians have written to the Apostle Paul, obviously, and they have asked him several questions, one of which deals with the Lord's return. And the question might have been worded something like this. Does the death of a believer before the Lord comes cause that dead believer to lose all hope of participation in the kingdom? And so Paul writes now under divine inspiration to answer that question, and he will answer it, by the way, with a resounding no, it will not. A premature death of a believer will not keep one out of the kingdom. So let's give a little preview here and see what he says in verses 13 and 14. And by the way, this will do three things. First of all, he writes to dispel the believer's ignorance in verse 13. You notice he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, 
about those who are asleep. I write, he says, under divine inspiration, to dispel your ignorance. Old KJV renders it this way, King James. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. We don't want you to be uninformed, he says. So, the Spirit of God has moved on my heart, and I am writing to see that you are no longer ignorant. Secondly, he will not only dispel the believer's ignorance, but in verse 13, he will describe the believer's death. Now, let's take a look at it. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. The word he uses here is koimao. And koimao in the Greek carries with the idea of sleeping or dying or reclining. Now, for the child of God, it's always the sleep of death. It is always the sleep of the body. It is never used of the sleep of the soul. Sorry, you Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, you Seventh-day Adventists. It's always used of the sleep of the body. Let me show you. Keep your finger here and go to Matthew 27. We'll run just a couple of references. In Matthew 27, 52, the idea is shown very precisely. Matthew 27, 52. Uh, we'll start at 51. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, obviously, right now, at Christ's death. And the tombs, Matthew 27, 52, were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. People don't sleep in tombs, obviously. Koimao is used of those who have died. One other passage, a very familiar one. Go to John 11. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. And in John 11, 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And now if you go down to verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So, back in 1 Thessalonians 4 now, the idea in koimao in the Greek literature, in fact, the Greeks had a term, a koimaterion. And you can almost hear the correspondence from cemetery, koimaterion. Our word, English word cemetery is related to it. It was a resting house. A koimaterion was a resting house, uh, a kind of a motel, a place for strangers to rest or to sleep. It was used of, a, of an inn or a hotel or a motel. And the idea here, when he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, the idea is that... For the believer who has died at the rapture of the church, Christ will return to the hotel or motel where that physical body is sleeping, not the soul. The physical body is sleeping and he will awaken it and he will take it to be with him. That's the idea in the passage. Thirdly then, not only has he dispelled the believer's ignorance, that's why he writes, and has he described the believer's death... Rather now, he will defend the believer's hope. By the way, you don't need to answer this. Have you lost a loved one lately? In fact, let's answer it. Has anyone in here lost a loved one lately? Then, dear brother and dear sister, here we go. He says, don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The reality in losing a loved one is that we sorrow. Nowhere does Scripture tell us not to sorrow. But he says, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. You see, the believer's hope, the concept of hope, elpis, in Greek, is not like it is in English. 
In English, we, boy, I hope the Huskies can pull this thing out. By the way, that was a great victory last night, right? <clears throat> but maybe they will and maybe they won't. I, I hope the snow holds off in Colorado until they finish the first round of the playoffs. It may or may not. In Western literature, the idea of hope is something that may or may not come about. The concept of a biblical hope with Elpis is a settled conviction based on the promises of God. It has nothing to do with may or may not, depending on the context. So he says, we don't want you to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Don't grieve if you've lost a loved one as the pagan world does that has no hope. Your hope is a settled conviction based on the promises of God that that one who is in Christ is immediately in the presence of the Lord. And when the Lord returns, he will raise that body out of the coimeterion, rejoin it to the soul spirit and will be with him. So, he says, not only that, verse 14, guess what? (laughs) The departed saints will also be with him. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him the soul spirits of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, verse 14 is in Greek, a first class condition. Now, I don't know how often your pastor refers to Greek and to Hebrew. So if, if he doesn't like to do that, then once again, just kind of smile. And, you know, when I'm gone, you won't have to put up with it anymore. But I like to r- relate languages to English insofar as I can. I have a feeling he probably does, too, because I know where he went to school. He went to that other seminary out on the West Coast there. Uh, didn't go to Dallas. That's all right. It's a great school. Master's a great school. First class condition of the Greek. For since indeed, the first word in verse 14. For since indeed we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, what have we looked at? He writes to dispel their ignorance. He wants to make sure that when they've asked this question, Paul, does the death of a believer before the Lord comes cause him to lose all hope of sharing in the glorious kingdom of Christ? Emphatically, no. He dispels their ignorance and he tells them about that kind of death, that it's a body sleep, not a soul sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the instant a believer dies, the body goes in the ground, the soul spirit goes to be with the Lord, to be rejoined together once again in the glorified body at the rapture. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, step number two on your outline, if you've got it there in your bulletin, the Christian's promise of the rapture. We've seen the preview of it. Now let's see what he promises. Verse 15. For this we say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the parousia, this concept of parousia was a a semi-technical term really in Greek literature, for the visit of a king or an emperor or a dignitary or in pagan literature the appearance of a god. So, the Holy Spirit moves on Paul's heart to use this particular term, which in the Greek literature would have been the appearance of a God, and says, guess what? When the God-man himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes, it'll be a parousia. It'll be a particular appearance of the dignitary, the king, the emperor of all the earth. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, he promises a couple of things here. First of all, that the faithful dead have prominence. They rise first. 
Now, someone has said, well, they go first because they have six feet farther to go. But I don't think that's it. Really, I don't know why he does what he does. There are some things that are mysterious. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me show you something. In 1 Corinthians 15, keep your finger here, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, dealing with the same event, Paul makes this statement in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery, a mysterion in English, uh, as we bring it into English, a mysterion was that which is theretofore unknown, that is, from that point in the text, that which is theretofore unknown and unknowable by human means, now divinely revealed. So, writing under divine inspiration to the church at Corinth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Behold, I'm going to show you something that has never been revealed before, and here it is. Some won't die. There is a generation of believers that will not taste death. And I tell my students, <clears throat> I think it's this one. As we look at geopolitical events today, the way that things are coming together, the way that God is moving His chess pieces around, I firmly believe and anticipate the rapture of the church today. Or tomorrow. Or the next day. But I tell my students, you know what? If he doesn't return in my lifetime, if I were a betting man, I would bet the farm, I would bet the ranch that he will return in the next generation. I don't see how you can let it go on much longer. But he says now, there will be a generation that won't die. The final disciples won't die back in 1 Corinthians 15 now. I mean, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm sorry. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, or in verse 15, he says... I say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in Christ. And by the way, this is a good dispensational passage, if you're not afraid of the term dispensationalism. Because only believers in the church age, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church, are referred to as those in Christ. So, those who have died in this age between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church. When that event occurs, A, Paul says, as he writes to answer their question, don't worry about it. <laughs> they are resurrected first. Finally, those who are alive and remain will be caught up. Final disciples won't die. Now, the concept of the rapture is not found in the Gospels. I mean, the... the the, the concept is there, but there is no passage in the Gospels that deals with the concept of the rapture. The closest we come is John 14, and I quoted that to you a while ago, where the Lord says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's the promise. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, the promise of the rapture for the believer is first made by Christ in John 14. And then secondly, he says, the faithful dead will have prominence. They'll rise first. And finally, there will be a final generation of disciples that won't die. So, we've previewed it. 
And we've seen his promise. Now, thirdly, the program of the rapture. All right, Paul, as we Thessalonians are reading your letter, how is it going to happen? Tell us step by step what it's going to be like, Paul. All right. So he says in verses 16 and 17, and he makes four specific points, and I want to point them out to us today. First of all, there will be a return. There will be a return. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. We'll stop right there. Matthew 24, 31 makes it very clear. We won't take the time to turn to it. But at the second advent, following the tribulation period, Christ sends out angels to gather the elect that come to faith during that horrible period of world history and who happen to survive it by God's sovereign protection. But at the rapture, it will be Christ himself. Go back in your thinking, at least. You don't need to turn to it. Acts 1, 9 through 11. The ascension is occurring, and as Christ is going back, the disciples, now apostles, see two men in white garment, two angels. And the angels say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who has taken up from you shall so come again in like manner, just as you've seen him go into heaven. In other words, his return is going to be personal. It will be visible. It will be a physical return. He went away visibly and physically. And the Spirit of God, writing through the Apostle Paul, says the same thing. You know what? Luke records, he will come back just as he went away. So now, as he comes to verse 16, he says, first of all, there will be a return. It will be Christ himself. And how is it going to be? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The verb is katabino and means come down. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God. Now, this is the heart of the matter. And I want to spend a little time in it. A couple of hours. Here we go. Just kidding. This idea of a shout in English, a kelusma, it was... Used in the Greek literature for several things. It would have been used for the cry of a ship's master to the rowers. Throw! 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 It would have been used of a military officer to his soldiers, the battle cry. Follow me! Follow me! It was used in the Greek literature of a hunter to his hounds. Anybody in here have dogs? A dog? Is he a good dog? Not a good dog. Okay. It was the cry, Achillusma, get him, sick him. An emphatic cry. It was used of chariot, uh, charioteers with horses. Anybody here ever seen the old classic movie Ben-Hur more than 23 times? Something like that. Remember the famous scene in the chariot races? And they're lashing those horses. This shout, this kelusma, was used in various ways. And it's always an authoritative, forceful shout. But then he says, with the phone, with the voice of the archangel. And the, the word that's used here normally denotes a, a, a loud, authoritative cry, sometimes one that's uttered in, in amazement or excitement. Oh! For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the trumpet call of God. Now, we have to 
Think for just a minute. Most, most commentators see these as parallel construction. As three different things. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God. I would like to suggest something to you nowadays, and you can talk about this heresy over dinner, and you can tell pastor, uh, don't bring him back because this is heretical, okay? All right, now, I would suggest to you that this is not parallel construction, rather that this is subordinate construction. I would suggest to you that these are not three different things, that this is one thing said three different ways. Hmm. You got any substantiation for that? Well, keep your finger here and go to Revelation 1, for example. I'll just give you one illustration. In Revelation 1, John is being given his vision of the glorified Christ. And in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind, uh, heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Massive power, authority. That's what's involved in it. Hmm... When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? You stand, and all you hear is this horrible roar of the water going over the falls. Once again, the idea in the language that is being conveyed is this voice is absolutely authoritarian and nothing can overcome it. So now back in First uh, Thessalonians 4, I would suggest that we might read it this way. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, which is the voice of God, which is the voice of the archangel. In other words, one particular Horrible, loud, magnificent noise. Rather than three things. One commentator says this. It's not said who will utter the command, but it may well be the Lord. John 5, 28 and 29. In fact, don't turn to it. Just let me read a couple of verses to you in John 5. John 5, 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. When all who are in the tombs, verse 28, shall hear His voice and come out. That voice, First Thessalonians 4, same word. If not, then the command, the voice, and the trumpet call may all be ways of referring to the same thing. And then he makes reference to that Revelation passage, which we just looked at. Not only will there be a return, secondly, there will be a resurrection. Watch this, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, there's the return, with a shout, which is like the voice of the archangel, which is like the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is, believers in this dispensation from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church... And I take it only those at that time will be called out of the graves. This is not the resurrection that occurs in Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. That's the great white throne judgment. That's for the wicked dead of all time. Rather, this 
is the resurrection that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 that we've already made reference to. Not only will there be a return, not only will there be a resurrection, thirdly, there will be a rapture. Verse 17. Oh, I love this one. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the term rapture is an English term taken from the Latin. You are aware that the term rapture does not appear in Scripture. The concept does, but the term itself is not. This is a term that has been coined from the Latin to help us understand it. The Latin verb rapio means to drag away or to plunder or to seize or snatch or carry off. It's a very, very strong word. Rapto, to drag off violently, the other form of the verb. The Greek harpazo carries with it the idea, I hold this pen, I have harpazoed. I have raptured this pen. The Greek harpazo carries the same idea that the Latin Rapio and rapto carry. And harpazo means to carry off by force. It could mean to claim for oneself eagerly. It's the same concept in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. You remember where Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it carries with it the idea of taking off speedily, snatching away speedily. In Revelation 3.10, to rescue from the danger of destruction. Another emphatic idea that the church will not go through the tribulation period. In other words, what is happening here, Paul says, is the Lord himself, there's the return, will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. There's the resurrection. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, verse 17, here's the rapture. Then we who are alive and remain shall be harpazoed, shall be snatched up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Ah, that's going to be a day. That is going to be a day. You might say, is there any precedent for that? Of course there is. Let me give them to you very quickly. Hebrews 11.5. We see the concept in Hebrews 11.5 of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Back in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Elijah, you don't need to turn to it. 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12. Elijah's ministry has come to an end. And he's just about ready to turn the prophetic mantle over to Elisha. And 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12 makes a statement. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Paul himself, you might turn to this one in 2 Corinthians, back just a few pages. 2 Corinthians 12, you're familiar with it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. By the way, dear brothers and sisters, the next time on your so-called Christian talk radio shows or your so-called cartoon channel televangelist TV shows, the next time you're hearing somebody tell you how he went to heaven and saw all kinds of things, please disregard it. If the Spirit of God is not going to permit the Apostle Paul 
to record for us what he saw, do you think he's going to permit these guys anything legitimate? No. We've already made reference to the Acts 1, 9 through 11, the ascension when Christ was taken up. So we have several examples of this idea of going to be with the Lord. Not only will there be a return, not only will there be a resurrection, not only will there be a rapture. Ah, This may be the most blessed of all. There will, fourthly, be a reunion. Look at verse 17, the end of it. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. With who, Paul? With those believers that you have written to me and asked about. Those believers in Christ who have died that you're afraid are going to miss the wonders of the kingdom because they've died. No, no, they're going to go first. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The resurrected New bodies will be reunioned, if I can coin a term, with their soul spirits. Those believers who have died in Christ will be reunioned with living believers. And those resurrected glorified believers and those living believers now instantaneously changed to glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be reunioned with Christ. Those loved ones that have gone on before, we'll see them again. Fathers and mothers and sons lost in combat that knew the Lord. And daughters and children who have died in infancy. And children who have died in disease. And aged parents now in glorified bodies. And husbands and wives all reunited once again. Those mothers that, because of sin in this earthly plane, were robbed of holding those babies. Ah, they'll get to see them again. Ah, that'll be a day. Visiting dignitaries would be met by an important person going out of the city. And escorted into the city. Christ will call us, come to meet us, and escort us home to glory. Amen. The fourth major point on your outline the comforting purpose of the rapture. You can turn now, if you would, please, over a few books to Titus 2, and we'll end it. I think there is no greater comfort at a memorial service or a funeral than this particular passage. Some years ago, the Whiteheads were on vacation down in Southern California. And on the way down there, my brother-in-law, Scott's sister, passed away. We were informed as we were going down on vacation to Disneyland that... There would be a memorial service. So my sister and brother-in-law flew back from Arkansas where they reside. A few days later, it was the appointed day. And the family was in the park, and I told my dear wife, you know what, I need to run over to the memorial service for Ann. You all stay here, I'll run over to the hotel, take a quick shower, 
change clothes and go. Well, I drove over, and because I grew up down in that area, we were from there, we knew exactly where the cemetery was. I got there before the hearse and before the family and was parked under a tree maybe 50 yards away just watching. Presently, the hearse pulls up, people begin to file out, and I see my sister and my brother-in-law, and they get out of the car, and I haven't seen them in probably at that time five or six, six years it had been because they live in the Midwest, and we obviously live on the West Coast. So I got out of the car, and I strolled over, and Scott, my brother-in-law, saw me coming, and he leaves those that he's walking with and walks right over to me, and he throws his arms around me, and he gives me a big hug, and he says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and I sort of pulled back, and I said, uh, is that what you've been meditating on today, brother-in-law? He says, no. He says, that's what you're speaking on. And I did. But you know what? Verse 18, I'm convinced that the Spirit of God put this in here for that comfort. There is no greater comfort at a funeral. Following the rapture of the church, think about this. Following the rapture of the church, we will never know separation again, brother. Therefore, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Titus makes this statement in Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 through 13, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tremendous affirmation of the deity of Christ. I just point out two things to you. Paul tells Titus, he says, first of all, that we should be living for the Lord, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Are you living for him? Oh, you should be. Am I living for him? I strive to do so as God's spirit enables me to do so. But not only should we be living for the Lord. Secondly, what does he say? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only should we be living for the Lord, we should be looking for the Lord. I would add one more L to that as I was thinking about this this week. Now for you young people, this won't mean much to you. But when you get 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, I find that the older that I get, not only am I striving to live for the Lord, not only am I looking for the Lord, ah, more and more each day I'm longing for the Lord. Are you longing for His return? As you look at the situation in this world today, I find myself, because we live out in Puyallup and I drive into campus and then drive home, I spend a couple hours a day on the road. 
on good days. Sometimes it's longer. And I find myself regularly just talking to the Lord, the cathedral of the car. You know what I'm talking about? And several times a week. Lord, when are you coming back for the church? When are you coming back for the church? He has, he tells us in the book of Acts, appointed a day, God has, in which he will judge the world by one man, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, dear one, everything that has been said this morning at this moment in time space has absolutely no bearing on you. If the Lord descends from heaven today with a shout, which is like the voice of the archangel, which is like the trumpet of God, whether it's one event described three ways or three separate events, we'll find out when it happens. But if it happens today and you're outside of Christ... The vast majority of this assembly, if it happened right now, would be gone and you'd be right here. What a terrible thing. You want to be included in that great, great, great event for which the church has been looking for 2,000 years? Acknowledge your sin by virtue of the fact that you are a human being and alive. Ephesians 2 makes it clear you are dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. Secondly, recognize that Christ went to Calvary's cross on your behalf. His blood was shed on your behalf. And if you will, by sovereign grace, open your heart. He'll transform you. Chuck Swindoll. Anybody ever hear the name Chuck Swindoll? Chuck Swindoll used to tell a story. He was in his younger years, working at a particular place, and there was an old guy. And every day, when the bell sounded, people started to file out of the building, he's gone. And Swindoll says, I used to watch this. No matter how quickly I would get ready and get my place cleaned up again, he was always gone. He said, we watched this day after day after day after day. And finally, he says, couldn't take it anymore. Went up to him and asked him, hey, old timer, how is it that when the bell sounds, the buzzer sounds, when it's time to quit work, you're always the first one out of here? Swindoll says, in his old countryfied way, he says, it's no mystery. Says, I stays ready to keep from having to get ready. I stays ready to keep from having to get ready. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready? We would not have you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. That your sorrow is those who have no hope. For if indeed we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who fall asleep in Jesus. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain 
shall be harpazoed, shall be caught up together, shall be snatched away to meet them in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort. Comfort one another with these words. Lord, take these words this morning. What a tremendous passage. When are you coming back for the church, Lord? Is it today? May we be able to say like that old guy that Chuck worked with. (laughs) We stay ready to keep from having to get ready. Lord, convince hearts of the truth of Scripture. Convict any unregenerate of the truth of Scripture. And open that heart, Lord, and convert for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.